It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush. Alva's on a well-deserved holiday this week, but I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Emma Hazlitt, our associate editor for business, to discuss the sanctions. Hey. And you ask us. Why is the UK government bungling its refugee response? So today I'm delighted to be joined by our associate editor for business, Emma Hazlitt. Thanks so much for joining us. And you've actually come on the perfect morning. We're recording on a morning where the UK government has announced new sanctions on some high profile individuals, including Abramovich. So can you tell us a bit about who's going to be hit and what it means for them? I'm so excited to tell you, Anoush. <laughs> um, OK, so we've got seven new oligarchs that have been sanctioned. We've got Igor Sashin, who's the head of Rosneft and has been described as the second most important man in Russia. And we've got Oleg Deripaska, founder of aluminium producer Rusal, which is now part of a UK-listed company, EN+. Andre Kostin, who's the president and chairman of VTB Bank, which was sanctioned, I think... I should check. But I think it was sanctioned in the last round. He's also been called the Jedi Master of Russian Banking, which I quite like. Great title. Great title. Um, don't think it's his official title. <laughs> Alexei Miller, who's a CEO of Gazprom. We all know what Gazprom is. Uh, Nikolai Tokarev, president of Transnef, which is a kind of oil pipeline company. And Dmitry Lebedev, who's the chairman of Bank Russia and a general financier guy. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean? Because I, I think I remember back in the day, George Osborne had a few controversies about his meetings with Deripaska. And obviously, the Tory government, you know, in its current guise has been under pressure for its links to sort of influential and powerful Russians. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, we've got Evgeny Lebedev, who hasn't been sanctioned, we should say, in the House of Lords. There's been a lot of controversy around that. The big one is obviously Abramovich. Like, we, we all know who he is, really. This probably means he can't sell Chelsea. You know, there were a lot of big names sniffing around. Um, it does mean that Chelsea can operate as a football club, though. So I think there were some questions over transfer windows. This is as much as I know about football. We're really stretching <laughs> the limits of my knowledge. It will be able to operate as a sporting club or football club or whatever the license is. But he just won't be able to sell it, nor probably will he be able to sell his many very large houses. 
Yeah, tell us a bit about that, because um, he's obviously been trying to sell his properties since Russia invaded Ukraine and, and people with these kind of assets were, were sort of in the firing line. Is there any chance that he will be able to sell them? And also, what about his yachts and things? Would they already have been moved out of sort of UK waters? Yeah, so um, there's actually a really great database doing the rounds at the moment of um, <laughs> Russian <laughs> oligarchs and their yachts and the associated <laughs> private jets. It's great. I'll send it to anyone who wants it. Um, but he will have moved his yachts out of UK waters. I spoke to a property buying agent who suggested that he probably wouldn't have been able to sell his house. So he's got one massive house in Kensington Palace Gardens. That makes him the next door neighbour of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. He's got an apartment on Chelsea Waterfront. The agent that I spoke to said he probably wouldn't have been able to sell them anyway because he had a bit of a red flag next to his name. Not an official mm. red flag, but you know. Mm. Um, and therefore, any agent who wanted to do business with him would have had to register with the National Crime Agency and ask for ask for kind of permission to work with him. So I think it would have been hard for him to do it anyway, but now it makes it even harder. It's hard to get official guidance on this because the funnily enough, the very upmarket London estate agents don't really want to chat about it. <laughs> Why it's not? Weird. I Guys, don't know. Come on the podcast. <laughs> I phoned them and was like, Do you have a statement? They were like, We comply with all the laws. I was like, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a good blanket statement for anyone who's uh, <laughs> who's under scrutiny. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not suggesting that any of them don't, of course. No. But actually there's been a bit of criticism even with this latest round of sanctions, because already the UK is now on sort of 41 individual sanctions, 18 of whom are described as oligarchs. But the EU has sanctioned over 500 individuals or entities and the US around 240. So the UK is kind of lagging behind. And we had Bill Browder, who used to be the biggest foreign investor in Russia, on the podcast on the last episode. And he was basically saying it's not enough. The UK needs to sanction 100 oligarchs for this to make a difference to Putin. But, you know, if you do do that, it does make a real difference to Putin because these people are essentially custodians of Putin's money, you know. This, this stuff isn't necessarily their own wealth. Mm. I spoke to Bill, my mate Bill, um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. And he, you know, one of the points that he made is that the, the UK is really bad at sanctions enforcement. Um, he says there's the will, the political will is there, but we just don't have the money. And so he said of the 16 countries he's worked with to chase up this $230 million amount that his lawyer discovered had been stolen. His lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. Who then died in jail. He found that the UK was the biggest recipient of this money, this tax money that was stolen. And he went. He said he went to the National Crime Agency, he went to the Serious Fraud Office, he went to HMRC, he went to other agencies. He could not get them to chase it up. He said that of the 16 countries he's worked with, the UK is maybe the bottom two for enforcement. And I think that's where our problem really lies. That's so interesting because actually Parliament has rushed through the economic crime bill this week. So this is a bill that would bring more transparency to offshore property ownership um, and other things, um, obviously very much relevant to the current situation. And it's something that's been on the back burner. You know, I've spoken to activists before any of this was happening who were so frustrated because it was basically being shelved. Um, that's been rushed through. But there are problems with that as well, aren't there? Because the enforcement side just isn't strong enough necessarily to make it um, powerful legislation. Well, that's it. I mean, you say it's been rushed through. It's actually been around since 2016. Mm. Um, the full legislation was published in 2018. A couple of months ago, honestly, most activists that I've spoken to thought it had been shelved. Two months ago, Lord Agnew resigned at the dispatch box yeah. because he, he was so frustrated with the fact that this legislation has not come through. And then, oh, look, suddenly... 
Ukraine's been invaded and and we've got some legislation to to <laughs> sanction that. So that there's three kind of strands to it. The first is the register of overseas ownership of UK land and property. It basically means that if somebody tries to buy a house or a property within a corporate envelope, which is registered overseas, the beneficial owners of that have to sign a register and that will be completely transparent. Like you or I will be able to Google it. The second strand is kind of strengthening something called unexplained wealth orders. Mm. Essentially, if you have some money and the government doesn't know where it came from, you have to prove where it came from. Well, we can talk about those in a minute, but they are not great. Mm-hmm. And then there's a bit of stuff on sanctions enforcement. So they're going to make it easier to prosecute people who break sanctions. At the moment, individuals and businesses are only liable for a sanctions breach if they if, <laughs> if they actually knew they had been breaching it, which if you just go, oh, no, oh I didn't know, mate. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like the greatest rule and then there's there's also like just as a kind of aside there's this idea of a kleptocracy cell within the national crime agency which um is a silly idea for a, a number of reasons but you know all these things sound great they sound like they're really strengthening things pretty patel was very excited about them but you know we don't have enough money and we don't have enough will to enforce these things. So is it actually a good thing or is it just the government coming up with some nice ideas? I don't know. Mm, It's really interesting because I remember doing a piece a while back and this is on a completely different subject about COVID health and safety policy in the workplace, you know, Mm. um, back in the day during, during the hard times of the pandemic. And I remember speaking to people who were saying, look, regulators are just not funded properly in the UK anymore. So they were talking about the health and safety executive then. Yeah, yeah. They were basically saying, you know, you can make all the laws that you want, but if your enforcement bodies don't have proper resources and are not properly staffed, then none of those laws will actually be enforced. So it's more of a problem with enforcement than a lack of legislation. Yeah, and if you look at economic crime as like, you know, and that's things like fraud, that's mm. things like money laundering, all this stuff. If you look at it as a kind of a whole, it forms 33% of crime in the UK, like a third, which is enormous amount. But um, the amount spent each year on national level agency budgets for fighting this crime is £852 million pounds according to spotlight on corruption and that is 0.09% of total government spending or 0.042% of the UK's annual GDP right okay and it's not very much and there are no plans to change that even in light of the latest news i mean the government has said that they're you know they've given the biggest budget increases to financial crime whatever ever it doesn't sound like they're going to do anything. Mm-hmm. I think at the last budget, the kind of economic crime enforcement agencies got half the amount they had requested, right? half the increase in budget that they'd requested. I mean, you know, all of us have had one of those phone calls saying that it's HMRC, <laughs> like, and that you're about to be thrown in jail. It's, this, it's you know, this isn't oligarchs doing it, but it's the same kind of thing. It's It's money laundering, it's fraud, it's all that stuff. And it's just not being combated. And that's kind of scary. Yeah, and it kind of undermines this tough talk on the legislation like the Economic Crime Bill, for example. And also, you know, you've had politicians like Michael Gove and also Sadiq Khan has said similar about seizing the properties of right. the, some of these figures. So yeah. is that actually possible or is that rhetoric? At the mo- <laughs> I mean, yeah, Michael Gove said it, didn't he? At the moment, it's very hard. So you've got these unexplained wealth orders, which I mentioned before. Mm. Now, these are designed, firstly, they're quite kind of un-English really or un-British because the way that they work is they put the burden on the defendant to prove 
where they got their wealth from. That's really unusual for British law. So guilty before innocence. Precisely. And so I think if you speak to a lot of people who work you know, in the law sector, they're quite worried about it, about what kind of precedent that sets. Mm. But, you know, even without that, if you've got the NCA, so the National Crime Agency, they've <laughs> their former director general was quoted in like a big landmark report in 2018, pointing out that the way <laughs> the way that oligarchs do it is they'll have a, a unexplained wealth order issued against them. And then they will just keep running up the legal bills until the the National Crime Agency or whatever just runs out of money. And so there's only been about, I think there's been four prosecuted in total. I think maybe one has got through. Wow. Like it's... That's shocking. It's really shocking. And so the Economic Crime Bill, one of the changes is that it's not going to make the enforcement agencies liable, financially liable, right. to pay costs unless it really screwed up, essentially. But there's just a lot of scepticism from those that you speak to in the in the kind of law sector about how good or useful this is. Mm. And people have been pointing out oligarch loopholes in this in this legislation, haven't they? With the um, the <laughs> overseas ownership register, Oliver Bullo, who's a journalist who writes about this stuff a lot, and who we had on the New Statesman podcast recently. Absolutely, and he's great, and he wrote a really good piece for the Guardian called "The Oligarch's Guide to Getting Around." the economic crime bill. Never have so many oligarchs read the Guardian comment section. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Their their, uh, readership has probably gone up (laughs) only a bit. He pointed out that, A, you could have a professional services company, like a company formation agency, register on your behalf, so act as a nominee. Also, it only applies to people who own more than a 25% controlling interest in the company that owns the property that is being registered. So if you're an oligarch and you don't want your name in this on this register, maybe you just share it with four of your closest relatives. And oh. then then there's five of you and then no one has to register. So I mean there's so many loopholes. Also the government is now I mean originally they were going to give um companies 18 months to comply. That's now gone down to 6 months, but you know, it took me 6 months to sell my house. Like it's not that hard. Mm, yeah. So yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, this is all quite depressing. I mean, is there anything <laughs> is there anything that we can celebrate in Britain's sort of economic response to to the invasion of Ukraine? Um, well, I mean, you spoke to Bill Browder last mm. week, and he was saying that the way the UK's uh, intelligence has has functioned oh, has yeah. been amazing. Right. If we can take that strategy and apply it on the economic side, and just realise that we have to be really stringent, then perhaps you know, perhaps things will get better. And Priti Patel in Parliament on Monday was, you know, she mentioned the Economic Crime Bill 2.0 a lot. There are potentially some quite interesting measures in that. So it will require directors and persons of significant control to verify their identity with the company's house. Because that's one of the other loopholes is like, you could just say that, you know, the tooth fairy owns this house (laughs) and there's no way of checking that. So under the second version of it, they will be required to register their identities and it'll only allow companies to have one layer of corporate directors and they'll have to be based in the UK. So that's strengthening it. Um, overseas agents will be prevented from forming UK companies. So that is nominee problem will be mm. out of the window. Companies house will also be given powers to reject filings and query information. I as if it doesn't already have those powers already. I know. Um, excuse me. <laughs> and then there's things like powers to seize crypto assets. And as we know, that's one of the ways that the uh, oligarchs have been getting money out of 
the country. So mm-hmm. there is stuff coming up, but is it just going to be too late? Yeah, because when is this 2.0 version? Yeah, no, we, we don't I mean, know. coming months. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure if um, Ukrainians uh, feel that they've got that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks so much for explaining the latest, and I'm sure we'll have you back on to explain more about this in future. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. you don't mind staying on for our second section it's a section we like to call i ask anoush <laughs> great adaptation then <laughs> i've got an anonymous question why has the uk's response to the ukrainian refugee crisis been so inadequate it's a good question and actually i think you know while we've spent the whole first section of this podcast talking about the shortcomings of the uk's sanctions this area of the sort of Ukraine crisis response has been by far the worst, I think, the refugee response. After the war broke out, I was asking the Home Office, what are the plans? The plans basically that were first in place were just, you know, the the usual family migration visa route. If you've got relatives of a certain sort of closeness, then then you can come and join them. Or fruit picking. Or fruit picking. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that minister, the immigration minister who tweeted that got in trouble and, and, you know, there was a lot of outrage over it. But actually, he was telling the truth. That was basically, aside from the family migration visas, that was the only route for refugees from Ukraine to make it to the UK. Obviously, there's been concessions since then. We now have an extended family route. So you can join your uh, extended relatives and you can join people who have um, settled status in the UK, not just British citizens. And also the local government department is cooking up a sponsorship scheme, which means that local communities uh, or businesses can sponsor refugees to come over who don't have sort of family links in the UK. But we don't know the details of that. (laughs) I heard from a a group in a village somewhere in the UK that they wanted to sponsor 
someone to come over, but they didn't know how you apply for that. The refugees themselves don't know how to apply for that. We don't have those plans yet. Um, So that's been slow. And then you clearly have the Home Office feeling under pressure. Public opinion is very much on the side of allowing Ukrainians in without restriction. We had our own polling out, which showed 64% of people are in favour of Ukrainians coming over without restrictions. And, you know, the majority is also on the Tory voters side of that as well. 58% of Tory voters also felt that. So clearly the Home Office has been sort of on the back foot and taken aback by the public pressure, as well as pressure from the Tory backbenchers as well. And within government, there's a lot of disquiet about the way that Priti Patel has been handling this this latest crisis. So off the back of that, you have this front page of The Sun, I don't know if you saw, where Priti Patel suggested there would be this scheme that would allow all Ukrainians to come in. We don't know what that is yet. The Home (laughs) Office said, no, no, that's the sponsorship scheme that we've already (laughs) announced. Then they went back on that and said, oh, no, no, there will be new provisions. Uh, We're waiting for an announcement from the Home Secretary on on what that actually means. But it looks like the spin is ahead of the substance, as always with the Home Office, um, and they always get uh, called out on it. Um, I was speaking to a Tory MP, a former minister who knows the department well, and they were saying, look, you know, this is probably the most unimaginative department in Whitehall. It doesn't think outside the box and you just have to think outside the box in these kind of situations. And it really takes the ministers in the department to make it do that. And I thought that was a sort of little veiled comment about Priti Patel's leadership of that department. So I do think it's very much a watch this space situation in terms of her position Um, Our listeners, I'm sure they never read it, but they may have noticed that the Spectator cover this week uh, was border farce. And so, you know, when you have the right wing press um, coming out against sort of immigration policy, then you know that the Tory government's got a problem. I mean, there may be more announcements today. So listeners might want to make sure that they catch up on the latest of what the Home Office is saying, because this may be slightly out of date. But we can say for sure so far that the response has been slow and they've been they've been bungling it. There was supposed to be a way for uh, refugees to apply for visas in Calais. Uh, That hasn't happened. There was a nice poster, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, obviously the underlying thing there is like, oh, well, we can't let people apply in Calais because then other people who aren't Ukrainians might dare to apply from Calais. Or the French government might say, well, look, you created a visa post here, so why can't you do it for for other refugees and asylum seekers who are stuck uh, at Calais. Um, and then also there's there's been so many heartbreaking stories of people who haven't been able to go to Ukraine under the current provisions, even people who have family members there who they want to join. There's this case of a Holocaust survivor who also survived the um, famine in Ukraine, who has been stuck, unable to join her family. And, you know, there's so many MPs every day standing up in Parliament talking about their constituents who aren't able to bring their family members over. So these stories aren't going to go away and they're going to keep adding the pressure. The thing that's really struck me is if we kind of take the politics out of this, is this just a kind of failure of legislation? Like they just weren't, they didn't move fast enough? Or is this because the Tories still think that people are really anti-immigration and that they still want that, was it below 10,000 figure to be hit. Like, what is it that's causing this? Yeah, I think the problem is the latter. I think it is a political problem. I think there's an assumption among officials in the Home Office that everything that they present to their ministers has to be from the kind of context of a hostile environment of bringing immigration down of a points-based immigration system in post-Brexit Britain. So that's very much sort of where these kind of restrictions come from. The reason why I say that is you can really tell in the insistence on having biometric tests and security checks 
on people before they travel to the UK. So this obsession, you know, apparently, I mean, I was speaking to one peer who was having problems sort of having people rescued from Afghanistan because they were waiting to do biometric checks, which they couldn't do in Afghanistan because the, these checks weren't accessible from, from the visa center there. So, you know, th- this very much is politicized. This is the problem. Actually, what you can do is travel to the UK and do any necessary checks once you're in the country. That's possible. The head of the British Red Cross has said that the EU has obviously made the calculation that they can allow people to come over and do any checks that are necessary afterwards. So that barrier really is born of a suspicion of of foreigners coming into the UK, essentially. Of course, there are legitimate security concerns. You know, you if you let sort of unlimited people in, then you may get sort of people from Russian intelligence coming in or, you know, that there are there are legitimate concerns. But you think that the UK would be just as able to deal with those as its European partners, considering the whole idea of leaving the EU was that we could do things better, more efficiently and with less red tape, which obviously <laughs> is the opposite experience of these poor Ukrainian refugees who are trying to apply. Well, things are going well so far. Absolutely. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague, Emma Hazlitt. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.